Today's scripture reading is from James 1, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm also one of the pastors here. I'm usually the one who uh, gets up here and attempts to explain the text that's been read to us. And uh, as you might uh, be aware, uh, on the basis of what's on the walls everywhere on our campus, we're in a series on the book of James, and the subtitle of that is The Ethics of Grace. And so what we're going to do today is talk about resilience under trial. And uh, you may have noticed it if you've been a Bible reader for any period of time, that right in the center of this text is one of the most famously misquoted verses in all of the Bible. And that is where it says that every good and perfect gift is from above. And the place where that verse is misquoted is in Western American prayers. Think about how we pray. Think about what we emphasize and major on in our prayer. Isn't it true that oftentimes what we assume to be the good and perfect gifts that come from God have predominantly to do with good health, wealth, comfort, and personal safety? In other words, on some level, we feel, don't we, that, that the purpose of prayer itself is alignment, specifically getting God aligned with our desires, with our hopes, with our dreams, with our aspirations for our health, our wealth, our comfort, and our safety. But prayer in the Bible, if you go all the way back to Solomon, God invited him to, to, to ask for anything that he wanted to, and he asked for wisdom. Instead of health, wealth, comfort, and safety, he asks for wisdom instead. If you go to the Psalms, which are meant to be our, our picture of what true prayer is, uh, you see how full they are of, of, of meditations and contemplations on the nature and character of God. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, you'll see that, that even there, the point of prayer is indeed alignment, but it's not aligning God to our wishes as much as it is aligning us to God's wishes. And one of the things that James, which is sort of the New Testament expression of wisdom literature, one of the things that James continues to remind us of is that sometimes, in fact, oftentimes God's wishes stand in direct opposition to our natural impulses, 
and especially to our Western American health and wealth values and the inalienable right that we believe that we have to pursue our own happiness. So in the context here, when when James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about every good and perfect gift coming from God, the good and perfect gift that he's talking about is the power to say yes to God and no to self-indulgence. To say yes to God and, 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 and no to the flesh. And, and right in the middle of this text, he also puts a pregnancy metaphor. And, and he, he says in verse 14, each person is tempted when he's enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. Now, I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this in the message. He says that lust gets pregnant and has a baby. Sin. And sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. One of the commentaries I read on this text said this, All sin begins as a little embryo in the heart. So really, according to James here, there's one and only one pregnancy that you actually do want to terminate. And it's the sin with which all of us are pregnant. John Owen, the great Puritan, said this, Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. And, and, you know, tracing all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we know on the basis of Adam and Eve's interaction with the serpent that sin is conceived first with a lie and, 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 and then the pregnancy of sin is carried through when we believe and follow through with the lie. Happened in the Garden of Eden, it's been happening ever since. And so what I want to do today is, is highlight three specific lies that James points out, and then I'd like to finish with the truth that can set us all free. So the first lie is this. I can find happiness on my own terms. I can find happiness on my own terms is the first lie that James exposes. So first, I think it's important to acknowledge that happiness itself is a, is a good thing, uh, it, it's even affirmed right here in verse 12 when James says, blessed is the man, and, and, and then he continues to write. The word blessed in the New Testament Greek is actually the Greek equivalent of our word happy, happy, satisfied, filled with joy, is the person who is steadfast under trial. The pursuit of happiness, and this is one of the things that all wisdom literature, both Old Testament and New Testament, gets after, is that the pursuit of happiness on our own terms, rather than pursuing happiness on God's terms, will always lead to misery. In verse 14, James says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, this is actually bedroom language. This is sexual language. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, our relationship with God, for those of us who believe, is presented to us as a marriage. That's the dominant metaphor in the Bible to describe the relationship with, between God and his people. 
Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. You know, it says in the Old Testament too, as the, as the bridegroom rejoices in, in, in his bride, so the Lord your God rejoices over you. The Song of Solomon is actually uh, a, an, an account of, 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 of a married couple, uh, you know, living healthy in their marriage and living full in their marriage, but it's also meant to be a parable of God and his people. And the, the, the key text in Song of Solomon is, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. We are our beloveds and our beloved is ours. And the prophets, if you go to the Old Testament prophets, you'll see over and over and over again, Jeremiah, Hosea, Isaiah, you know, all of them. It's in, it's in the Proverbs as well, which is more or less the Old Testament equivalent of James. They all describe sin as spiritual adultery, as falling into the arms of a lover other than God, and, and depending on that lover to be your Jesus. Depending on that lover, whatever it is, to be your Lord and Savior, your master. But God promises blessing here. God promises happiness, and this is James' emphasis, to those and only to those who love him. You know, we sing it in, in Be Thou My Vision, which is one of the famous ancient hymns. You know, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said that God has limited himself. C.S. Lewis says that God cannot give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. And what C.S. Lewis is after, same thing James is after, is for us to understand this, that once any attraction, even if it's to a good thing, once any attraction becomes greater than our attraction to God himself, once any attraction, whatever that attraction is, becomes our non-negotiable, our functional Lord and Master and Savior and Rescuer, that attraction becomes a fatal attraction. Sin is, is like uh, an autoimmune disease of the soul. An autoimmune disease is when the body actually starts attacking itself. And so what James is after here is, is that we would understand that, that, that every time we sin against God, we are actually sinning against ourselves. We're actually attacking ourselves as well. Albert Camus, the, the existentialist philosopher, put it this way. Famous quote from, from Camus, because I longed for eternal life, because I was looking for a Lord and Savior, I went to bed with harlots and I drank for nights on end. And he went on to say, I, I slept in bliss, but I awoke with the bitter taste of the mortal state. Sin is self indulgence. It's believing the lie that I know better than God does what is best for me. It's believing the lie that I love myself more than God loves me. And, and, and it ends up being a train wreck because the more that you indulge yourself, the more you go against yourself. I mean, listen to what Camus is saying here. He's saying, I sought my salvation in sex and in liquor. And, and, and instead of making me more alive, it made me less alive. Instead of tasting sweet to my soul, it, it, it tasted bitter. My soul awoke to the bitter taste or with the bitter taste of the mortal state. But it's not just sex and liquor. 
that can do violence to our souls, that can act like the, the autoimmune disease of the soul. Gossip is another you know, sin that we, we very frequently, whether we're young or old, whether we're teenagers or, or in our 80s, gossip is something that, that we tend to want to indulge in because we, we, we believe a lie that this is the way to draw people into community with us. To do violence to the soul of somebody else who is not in the room is a way to draw others into community with us and, and, and to put ourselves into community with others who join in the gossip. But what, what happens is when, when, when you become the gossip, you actually push the very people away that you're trying to draw in because they don't trust you. If they're talking about them like this, who's to say they're not going to be talking about me like this tomorrow to some other group? And so people pull away. They don't disclose things about themselves to you. And so it actually works against itself. Or greed is another one. Greed, we think that, 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 that hoarding resources, hoarding money, hoarding things is going to make us feel secure. It's even embedded in our financial language, our, our savings. We, we refer to our savings and investments as our securities. We, we put our valuables in a safe and so we think that, 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 that hoarding and greed is going to make us feel safe and secure, but we end up in the end just like uh, Charles Dickens' Ebenezer Scrooge. The more we hoard, the more miserable and alone we become. And that's the furthest thing from safe and secure. Or, or if fame becomes our functional Lord and Savior, to have our name in lights, to, to, to be spoken well of, there are many people who have made it to the stage, who, who have made it you know, to the tabloids, etc., who would tell you, you know, ask anybody in the music business, that the loneliest people in the world are usually the ones that are on top and, 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 and who are living their lives on the stage. Because it's better to have friends than it is to have fans. And it's hard to have any friends when your whole life is built on having fans. It's a lonely existence. You know, the love that you're seeking through fame and, and reputation actually eludes you and you become more lonely, not less. Or holding a grudge. We think to ourselves that, 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 that if we forgive somebody for hurting us, that, that that's only going to give them more power. And we think that the way to hold power over somebody who has hurt us is to not forgive them, to resent them, to hold a grudge, to, to, to have these fantasies about striking back. And, 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 and that then over time you realize that the, that the grudge is what eats away at your soul. And it, it's actually the one way that your enemy can keep power over you is to continue to hold a grudge. And so what James is saying here is that the law of God, alignment to the law of God, which is the opposite of sin, the law of God is actually an expression of the grace of God. The grace and the law run together. They're not separate from one another. They're two sides of, a, of an inseparable coin, an indivisible coin, law and grace. And sometimes when, when, when you're exposed to the law of God, either through the reading of Scripture, the preaching of a sermon like this one, a book that you read that, 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 that puts the law of God in your face, especially the ones that, that you're most uncomfortable with, it feels like the law of God is fighting against you. And actually, it might be. 
But the reason why the law of God fights against you is because it is fighting for you. The law of God is the natural habitat for human beings created in the image of God. You know, the further away we get to aligning with the law of God, the further we get from that, the more we become like the fish who refuses to to get in the water, who'd rather live on land, and we become more anxious, breathless, and and, and weak. You know, take the the command, for instance, um, you know, forgive, uh, forgive those who have hurt you just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You know, the temptation when you've been hurt, when you've been offended, is to, to hold on and to nurse the grudge, to, to, to fantasize about retribution, maybe even to try to get retribution. Frederick Beekner said this about a grudge, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun, to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospects of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, a grudge, resentment is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that you're wolfing down yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. You N.T. Wright put it this way, if you are true to yourself, if you let your feelings and emotions and impulses be your guide, instead of the wisdom of God. If you are true to yourself, N.T. Wright says, you will end up a complete mess. So that's the first lie. I can find happiness on my own terms. You feel like you're in a fight with God on something that you're not wanting or ready to let go of? That's actually a good sign. That's a sign of a real relationship. If you never feel like you're ever fighting with God, it might mean that you're not even in a relationship with Him. Because real relationship, real health includes pushback to get us healthy. God pushes back on us, not because He's against us, but but because He's for us. The second lie is this, that suffering can only mean that God is against us. We tend to have one of two responses to suffering when it comes. And and the first is to assume, well, I'm on trial. God is judging me. This was what the friends of Job, the so-called friends of Job, believed about Job's suffering. And, And when he went through horrible suffering, what did they do? They said, you know, there's got to be something that you've done wrong. There's got to be some way that you've offended God. And so what you need to do, Job, is confess that to God, and then God will fix all of your problems. Or, you know, you go to the New Testament, and, and, and the disciples in, of Jesus encounter a man who's been born blind, and they turn to Jesus, and they said, who was it who committed a sin to cause this man to be born blind? Was it him, or was it his parents? And Jesus said, No. This happens so that 
the glory of God would be revealed in his life. And then Jesus ministered to him and the glory of God you know, was shown through this man's suffering. So, so the first response or the full, first impulse when suffering comes into our world is to assume I'm on trial. The second response is to put God on trial. And that's what the Israelites did chronically when they were in the wilderness. Their wilderness experience, it's there in Exodus 17, leads them to, to start, it says, quarreling with God, fighting with God, complaining against God because clearly God does not know how to run the world. Clearly God does not love us as much as we love us. Clearly God does not know what's good for us as much as we know what's good for us. And so they quarreled and, and, and got angry with God. Because of the lack of, of, of diversity, the lack of options on God's menu. They had sweet bread rained down on them from heaven called manna every single day. And they got sick and tired of that. They felt thirsty. Whenever they felt discomfort, they started to quarrel with God. In Numbers 14, it actually says that they grumbled ten times against God. So it was a repeated action. This was C.S. Lewis's impulse. Even, even the best among us will respond you know, by questioning. It happens in the Psalms. It even happened on the cross of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? C.S. Lewis, uh, after his wife died, writes uh, sort of a, a, a diary of sorts of his inner world after he loses his wife, Joy, to cancer. It's in a book called A Grief Observed, and he asks this question, where is God when you're happy, when you're so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him then with praise, you'll be welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that silence, you may as well turn away. So these are very real feelings. And what the Psalms show us is that, that it's actually a good thing not to bottle them up, to, but to actually pray them to God. And the difference between praying those very honest prayers in a pure way and in a broken way is that, 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 that in a pure way, we vomit it all out to Him, and, and then we, we draw the conclusion, and yet I will interpret these circumstances on the basis of what I know about your character. You know, how many times do we see David saying, after he vomits his hurt feelings out to God, but I will trust in your unfailing love. Or Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, I, I do not want to suffer in, in the way that, 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 that I know I'm about to suffer. And so if you can remove this suffering from me, please do so. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. That's different than the grumbling and the quarreling in the wilderness that assumes that somehow God is missing it. And that's why Lewis would write in another place in, in, in his book, The Problem of Pain, pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Pain is one of God's ways to help us hear his voice. And so... James uses two words here. It's interesting. He uses the word temptations and trials. Temptations are those things that the devil wants to use in order to break us and distance us from God. Trials, which describe the same circumstances, 
that temptations do, but trials are those things that God can use to make us and to draw us nearer to himself. It's like uh, the thorn in the flesh that the Apostle Paul had in 2 Corinthians 12. It says, a messenger was given me from Satan, a thorn in my flesh to, to torment me and to distance me from God. And it says that God took that same thorn and used it to, 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 to conv- convince me, to persuade me that his grace is sufficient for me, that, that his power is made perfect in my weakness. You know, whenever I think about the Bible's teaching on suffering and how it actually can grow our character and, and give us that good and perfect gift and, and be the catalyst to, to develop that good and perfect gift to resist temptation that James is talking about here, I think of banana bread. Think about banana bread. If you've ever made banana bread, surely if, if you live in the South, you've at least eaten banana bread and you know it's amazing. It's moist, it's sweet, it's, it's, but it's not too sweet. It's just right. And think about what the key ingredient is to banana bread. You can't have banana bread unless you have a rotten banana in the ingredients. And if you eat a rotten banana by itself, what's it going to do? It's going to taste bitter. It's going to nauseate you. And that's how we feel about suffering, and rightly so. When we take suffering by itself, it nauseates us and it's Bitter. But, but if we understand suffering like the banana, like the rotten banana, as an ingredient that's on a trajectory with all of the other ingredients that God has put in the story towards something sweet and, and wonderfully textured that will melt in your mouth eventually when God is finished with the good work, it also includes heat in the, in the oven. The key ingredient, the ingredient about which our senses say bitter, nausea. What the truth of God says, what the wisdom of God says is that that you absolutely need this ingredient in order for the magic to result as the ultimate outcome. And I think one of the things that we don't understand in the contemporary West where we believe that our most fundamental inalienable right is the pursuit of our own happiness. What we don't understand is that an easy road can also be a trial and a temptation. Did you know, just in the the area of, 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 of charitable giving, people who make less than $25,000 a year, less than, on average, give 4% of their income away to charity. People making over $100,000 a year give less than 1% of their income to charity. Wealth can fool us. Wealth can cause us to start to believe that our wants are actually our needs, or that our luxuries are actually requirements. Which is precisely why Jesus said it is harder for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's that hard. Those who desire to be rich, those who are chasing money, Paul says, wander from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. Jesus said you cannot simultaneously love God and love money. You can't simultaneously be chasing after God and chasing after a fat net worth. Now, having a lot of money can be the outcome 
of chasing God faithfully in whatever your vocation is. It, it can certainly be an outcome. It's not an immoral thing to, 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 to make money. But to love money will distance you from God. Second lie, suffering can only mean that God is against me. It actually might mean the opposite. Third lie, I am not the problem. That's the third lie. I am not the problem. It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, when they believed the lie of the serpent over the truth of God, and they ate the, the forbidden fruit. Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve, and then Adam blamed God for giving him Eve. Verse 13 from James, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. It's your own desire. What he is saying is this, the only reason that you ever sin is because you want to. That's the only reason you ever sin against God is because you want to. This word for desire is, is uh, epithumeo, which, which means over-desire. And over-desire, biblically, is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. It's when it becomes a functional Lord and Savior, the thing that you give your life to, the thing that you would be willing to sin against God in order to get it or to hold on to it. That's what an over-desire is. And it can actually be good things. It usually is that our hearts are drawn to and eventually grab us around the neck. Career. When we get to the point where we're willing to even consider lying or cheating in order to move forward in our career, that's become our over-desire. And then we say, well, it's complicated. I have to in order to survive this environment. No, you don't. No, you don't. Or money, when, when, when we spend it all on ourselves, when, when our incremental you know, raises and, 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 and our growing wealth causes us to think less in terms of generosity and more in terms of self-indulgence as the, statistic, as the statistics show. We say, well, in order to keep up, in order to live in this environment, in order to be able to minister to people at this income bracket effectively, I have to spend it all on myself. No, you don't. You don't have to. Or if the value is comfort and safety, personal peace and personal happiness, and then we avoid contact with people who we perceive to be risky or costly, people who are sinful, people who are sick, people who are poor, people who are refugees, we say to ourselves, I have to. No, you don't. Or when our thing, our functional Lord and Savior, is being accepted by our peers. Now, this was a big one for me. I, I'll never forget the day in high school. I'm still ashamed of it. I'm still embarrassed by it. Tenth grade. A girl in our class named Anne, and the class bully, who was also the class clown, looked at her, Anne across the room and said, Anne, you are the ugliest human being I've ever seen. And the whole room started laughing. And I started laughing, and I felt really, really dirty for laughing, as I should, because I was participating in an assassination attempt on a human soul. 
But I said to myself, this is the environment. To be accepted in this environment, I have to laugh. No, I didn't. I didn't have to laugh. I didn't have to laugh at all. Here is the truth that will set us free from this. Jesus is the supreme Lord and Savior. Thomas Merton said this, the biggest human temptation is to settle for too little. When we settle for sin, we're settling for too little. When we settle for something that God has created to be our functional Lord and Savior instead of looking to Jesus to be that for us, we settle for too little. Thomas Chalmers put it this way, the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul, because remember, the things we chase after tend to be beautiful things. They tend to be good gifts from God that, that, that become corrupted because they end up having us around the neck. Chalmers says the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show, is to show the soul an object even more beautiful. This was what David did. King David had a, an Albert Camus experience, right? There was a season in David's life where, where, where sex and power became the functional Lord and Savior for him. And it ruined him. It, you know, he writes a psalm later about it, about how his bones, he felt like his bones were wasting away when he was chasing after something other than God. And then in Psalm 27, he comes to his senses and says, there's one thing, there's one thing that I would ask of you. This is my prayer, God. Talk about alignment. One thing that I would ask for, one thing will I seek, that I will be able to behold the beauty of God, to see how beautiful, how lovely he is, and what makes God, what specifically makes Jesus the supreme beauty. It's the marring of his beauty that makes him beautiful. It was the fact that the, the bullies got around him and called him ugly and laughed, and he didn't retaliate. Instead, he prayed another prayer of alignment. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Even compassion on the bullies, even grace for the graceless Pharisees. They were merciless toward him, representing us. We were merciless toward him, laughing at him, assassinating him, body and soul. And he took it because he had to because he had to. It was the only way that he would be able to look at you and to look at me and say, as the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so the Lord your God rejoices in you. With that as a beauty that you already have in your possession, why would you, why would I settle for too little? This table invites us to settle for the only beauty that will satisfy, the only beauty that will give us happiness, the Lord's table. Everyone is invited. Or as my friend across town, Pastor Ray Ortland says, I'm a complete idiot. The gospel is true, and anyone can get in on this. 
all are invited who have been baptized into the church of Jesus Christ and who desire to renounce sin and follow Jesus as the supreme love of your life. If this doesn't describe you, we would uh, just humbly invite you to forego the elements this time and and consider Jesus. Uh, Observe, take it in, talk to your neighbor during the next few moments, get to know somebody. But as the pastors and elders and servers come forward and the children uh, start to come back in, let's contemplate the beauty of Jesus as we recite standing the Apostles' Creed together.